Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, Laura Common on her new book, Thunderclap, a memoir of art and life and sudden death. Laura Cumming has been Chief Art Critic of The Observer since 1999. Her books include A Face to the World on Self-Portraits and The Vanishing Man in Pursuit of Velasquez which won the James Tate Black Biography Prize. Her family memoir on Chapel Sands, My Mother and Other Missing Persons, was a Sunday Times bestseller and shortlisted for the Bailey Gifford, Costa and Rathbones Folio Prizes. And today we're going to be talking about Laura's latest book, which is Thunderclap, a memoir of art and life and sudden death. Laura, welcome back to Little Adams. Oh, I'm so delighted to be here again, Neil. I've always enjoyed doing the podcast with you and they're always the first ones I do. Um, so tell us, first of all, then, what the idea is behind this one. Yeah, the title of the book is Thunderclap. The Thunderclap was an explosion that occurred in Delft in 1654 and destroyed huge parts of this very, very small canal-ringed uh, city in, in uh, the Netherlands. And the person who died in that, who I am most interested in, of the many untold numbers, is Carol Fabricius, who was the artist who painted the goldfinch, the very famous painting, uh, the goldfinch. And he was just gone at the age of 32 in the space of a few hours on that day. So the book relates to that event and his life and everything that preceded it and the strange mystery of what happened to his paintings and what happened to his reputation after that. But Thunderclap, the title also refers to the thunderclap of sight, which is, I suppose, my primary subject all the way through the book. The thunderclap of seeing an absolutely astounding painting and feeling that your whole understanding of life has changed, or the thunderclap that is a revelation uh, to do with sight and seeing. There are moments in the book where people's actual eyesight is changed in some way uh, by a thunderclap. Uh, in the case of my younger daughter, uh, she went colourblind from looking too hard at the sun in a thunderclap. So the book is literal, but also metaphorical in its title. And the book also looks at the the life and career of James Cumming, the artist, and your own father. Um, and we'll talk about him in a minute. But just just staying with something you've just raised about the idea of sight and the idea of you know a sudden like suddenly seeing something or something suddenly changing. 
One of the concepts in the book is something called the idea of a person's picture world. So tell us what you mean by that. Yes, my first picture, my first painting that I ever saw, apart from my father's paintings, he was a painter too, was in a primary school class when I just started school my first day in Edinburgh and in a brand new school. And on the wall of this classroom was hanging um, a painting of a Dutch ice scene from the 17th century. This is my century, very much the the subject of this book. And in you know, all these tiny little figures are all you know, skating around and eating and talking and conversing and playing games and primitive form of a thing called golf, um, which is ice, the game of golf on the ice. And I loved this painting and it was getting very uh, vivid to me. And I knew it was an old painting because the colours in it were very sort of faded compared to the brilliant colours of um, the 1960s, which is when I was going to school for the first time. And um, we were being taught using Cuisinaire rods, which were um, a math system. Maybe some of your listeners have seen these. Um, I don't know if they're used anymore, but all numbers had colours and lengths of rod. So number, you know, number 10 was bright red and, you know, number five was green and so on. And number one was white, a tiny little white cube, a centimetre square of wood. And the painting that I was looking at on the wall was pretty much all white because it was an ice scene but with these rather beautiful, smoky, pink tinges in the sky and a distant perspective of pale grey buildings way away across the ice. And I loved the painting, and I, I thought it was a painting. And, of course, it wasn't a painting at all. Um, it was a reproduction. My father, who picked me up from school, explained to me that this was a Dutch winter landscape by Hendrik Averkamp, about whom I talk a lot in the book because he's a very strange figure. And when I said, well, if it's Dutch, why isn't it in... Dutchland. <laughs> and he said, well, it's from, it's a scene of the Dutch in the Netherlands, but the original painting is in the Netherlands. It is Dutch. You're looking at a reproduction. And I guess I was about four and I didn't really know what a reproduction was. I think this is quite common, Neil. I think a lot of people think they're looking at the original of a painting when they see something that's quite big and not a postcard, not a Christmas card. Lots of Dutch paintings were coming on Christmas cards, of course. And, um, so I was pretty fascinated. It was the first picture in my picture world. And my picture world developed. I mean, I saw paintings. I saw a lot of paintings in the house, my father's paintings. But I also came to, to the image world, as I think we mostly do, through re reproduction. So everybody now, obviously, it's, you know, mobile phone images and so on. But, but for me, it was strange things like little prints and card games that had pictures printed on the back. And the key moment in this story, which is also a story of being absolutely passionately interested in Dutch 17th century painting, you know, the still life and the scudding ship and the fish on the table and the Dutch burgers and, and so on, and all the things we think of, Vermeer, Rembrandt, Howes and so on. The key thing for me was being taken, I think I'm about eight, maybe, or nine. I can't quite, I can't quite remember when this occurs, though, because I, I, I didn't ever write it down, but I thought I was getting too fat. Um, I was at school with all these thin girls. And so my mother said, well, why don't we go to the doctor, the family doctor in this very sort of gloomy surgery just up the road from where we lived in Edinburgh. And I got weighed. And I mean, ritual weighing, and it went on every week. And you could see that a kind of a neurosis could easily have set in, possibly did. But it also came with a very joyful thing, which was the reward I got when I lost the weight, which was a sequence of Dutch postcards. And this guy this very hardworking family doctor, he was there in the evening and came to your house and, you know, delivered babies and so on. And he'd obviously had a holiday where he'd gone to the Moritz house in The Hague because he had all these postcards of famous paintings and 
So these famous paintings became very important to me. I treasured the cards, and one of them was, of course, the Goldfinch by Carol Fabricius, which is the first time I ever saw it. It was in black and white, and um, I was completely enthralled by it. And all the way through this book, these postcards turn, as it were. They come to life in my life, but they also finally are seen by me in actual galleries during different phases of my life. So eventually I see the goldfinch for for real, as it were, in that very museum, and it's a thunderclap. You talk about your father's actual works, how his painting changes roughly halfway through his painting career. He becomes a, you know, a completely different painter, or he takes on a completely different project, I should say. But I want to talk really about what are your early memories of him as a painter, as somebody who did painting as a job? Well, I think this is one of the great blessings of my life because um, I'm an art critic and I can't paint, incidentally, at all. Not bad at sculpting, but rubbish at painting. But my house, both my parents were artists, so this is what they did for a job. And there's a moment in the book where I'm describing that first day at school where they went around the class, very sexist, uh, as we would think now, but they were asking all the kids in the class what their fathers did for a living. And uh, so we get to me and I say he's a painter. And the woman asking me, Miss Rhoda, the primary school teacher, says, well, what kind of painter, you know? I mean, is it a house painter or, you know? And I had no idea that there really was any other kind of painter than the kind that my father was. So a man, he got up in the morning and, you know, went upstairs to his um, the bedroom that he converted into a studio and painted solidly all day, sometimes with the sh- actually with the door locked for peace. And what he painted was this kind of painting called semi-figurative painting that was called. Um, that's to say you could see it was quasi-abstract, but there were figures moving around in it. These were all paintings that he had made that remembered the two years he spent in really acute poverty and uh, quite a lot of misery, but also utter revelatory joy on the island of Lewis in the Outer Hebrides, where the life was very strange and penurious, and he became very deeply involved in the strivings of the people on this very barren island without trees and so on. And so I was used to the idea that painters did that kind of thing. And it never surprised me, therefore, when I went out into, grew up and went out into the world, you know, that galleries were full of uh, semi-figurative paintings, abstract paintings, um, and so on, as well as the kind of Dutch paintings I'd seen when I was at home. And I think it was a huge advance for me because I knew that what he was making was a sequence of visions that recorded the strange experiences he had had over a period of years. And in this case, many years before, in fact, the memories of this island life. And he was very particularly concerned with the this strange phenomenon you see, and it's still the case on the island of Lewis, where people have a thing called second sight. So you see my theme is building up. Second sight is where you're able to see the future. And it's pictorial. So the original figure of who had the greatest second sight is a, is a man called the Bran Seer, Bran after the, the uh, castle where he worked on the Black Isle in Scotland, and a seer he could see far into the future. And the things he saw all took the form of images, if you like. So he predicted the coming of railways in the highlands, and this was, you know, black horses, metal, charging through the landscape and so on. And he predicted a, a time when Scotland would have its freedom again, when men could walk over the water to France. And that clearly is to do with Eurostar and you know, that particular era and so on. And so everything he imagined about the future and everything he predicted came in the form of an image. And my father ultimately painted a 
I think, tremendous vision of him. This is a 17th century figure. Um, and he imagines him as this extraordinary, strange figure, almost one with a landscape, who is striding forward but looking backwards and has this very weird eye that he turns on you. Can he see you? Is he seeing you in the future? And so on. And part of the book is an attempt to discover the whereabouts of that painting, which was lost just around the time that I was born and has never been seen since. I just have a little slide of it. With the possible exception of one particular Spanish painter, which you're entirely responsible for, <laughs> Laura, um, all of my, whenever I think of painting, all of my favourite paintings are Dutch. They're all the Dutch masters. I just adore it. And there was actually, it seems, a time a while ago after these Dutch masters had been painting where Dutch painting was not very popular. Let's talk about why. Yes, I think that's very true. And it's a, there's a very simple answer. There was far too much of it. In the 17th century, everybody bought paintings in the Netherlands. It's an astonishing time and place, and it never happens again in the whole of history. So uh, in the book, I've, um, I've written about wonderful inventories in Leiden and Utrecht and Amsterdam and so on, where you, you can see from people's wills, you know, that everybody had paintings. They had paintings. They, sometimes they had 60 paintings in one room. Some people had them in the basement. Some people had them in the attic. You know, they're absolutely everywhere and everyone owned them. So not just, you know, the burger with his white ruff and his, you know, large house on the Prinsengracht Canal in Amsterdam, but blacksmiths and innkeepers and chemists and so on. And people were making these amazing numbers of paintings. Some of the artists in my book are making thousands of paintings, you know, not Fabricius, who makes practically none, and everybody's buying them. And this wonderful democratisation of, of the Dutch in this era where they, they start to want images of themselves and everything that they do and everything that they see and everything in their house. And we think about the amazing paintings of Vermeer, for example, where, you know, light is burnishing the room and the milkmaid is standing with the jug in this amazing sweet session of silent thought and so on. But it's also a record of a room with an actual person in it and a, quite a lot of crockery. And lots and lots and lots of Dutch paintings are very, very like that in, in the elements that they want to portray. And I love this. I like the fact that they painted themselves drunk. I like the fact that they painted themselves smoking. I like the fact that they painted absolutely brilliant images of what I suppose we could call the ideal home. I'm thinking of the art of Peter de Hoek, uh, as well as Vermeer, where a woman has created such beauty in the home that the painter in turn, pays homage to her by painting it. There's a painting in the book that just is a, a wonderful, wonderful image by the Hoog of a, a it's called um, Made in a Courtyard with a pail and a brush. And that's exactly what it is. And you can picture the red brick and you can picture the beautiful sky and the Dutch gable ends and so on. But in this case, the pail is burnished copper inside and the painter has propped it on its side so that it appears to be looking at the sun, which is going down in the distance in this courtyard. And I thought to myself when I saw that painting, which is in Germany, that it the pale is like the eye. And the sight of everything, this revelation to all these artists, is what they're actually recording. The amazing fact of being able to see a beautiful twinkling canal or a silver fish on a dish or, you know, a vase of amazing tulips um, in flaming colours and so on. So I love it because there's so much of it. And it went everywhere. It travelled out into the world. And by the end of that century, there were Dutch paintings 
just literally everywhere. I mean, they were in America, they were in Russia, they were in Norway. Everybody had some, and there were too many of them. And of course, it's true that, you know, some of these paintings were not perhaps anywhere near as great as the as the works of Howells or Rembrandt or, or Vermeer or Carol Fabricius. But nonetheless, there was a, a wonderful kind of feeling that the whole of Dutch life is pictured. And that when you are seeing one of these paintings, which you see absolutely everywhere in rural galleries and galleries across the world and so on, that you're stepping back into this pictured world, which I just love. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Laura Cumming, and we're talking about her book, Thunderclap, a memoir of art and life and sudden death. And Laura, just one more thing about Dutch painting in general before we go on to talk about Fabricius and maybe some of the other lesser-known Dutch painters that you talk about in the book. You've just described, I mean, you know, the Netherlands at this time is this Hanseatic, Protestant, very proper, very concerned about business and money. There's all of these pictures of these men in, as you said, roughs and, and dressed in black and hats and things. And when we picture, um, you know, Rembrandt's portraits, they're often very dark. And so that's a sort of very distinct look and style that we think, you know, influences these paintings. Um, but there's obviously other things. And one of them, the Netherlands has, you know, a particularly unique landscape, for instance. But perhaps even more importantly, what you talk about in the book is the weather. 
And um, this time, the time of the Dutch masters coincides with the Little Ice Age. Um, So tell us something about the influence of the weather on these paintings. Well, you see, the Little Ice Age is is this absolutely appalling uh, phase. It it comes and it goes, but it's over a period of about 70 years. And it seizes the whole country. It takes grip of everything. Everything is white. The canals uh, freeze right over. The Baltic Sea froze during those years. I mean, it was unbelievable. And the thing I love so much about the Dutch is the fact that they just get on with going outside and living in it. There is nothing else to do. So Dutch paintings are absolutely full of scenes in which people are selling goods, they're skating, they're dancing. The the painting that's in my primary school class comes straight to mind, and they just transfer their lives outside into it. And they're brave, and, and they develop skating as their great national sport. So they skate down these canals. There are still canal races where they, you know, people can... When the canals freeze over, they escape for miles and miles and, you know, miles right across the country. And so I love that about them. And the landscape also, even in even when it melts, I love the, the flat, strange. It's a bit related to me in my mind to the book I last wrote on Chapel Sands, which is set in Lincolnshire, directly across the North Sea from the Netherlands. And I love these long, linear landscapes where you see lines of poplars, sort of as if we're measuring the perspective and um, one of the paintings in the book is the avenue at Middle Harness, which your listeners may have seen. It's just a wild painting, a kind of parallax view. These incredible tall, tall trees, sort of hyper tall trees converging on a flashpoint in the distance. Um, it's in the National Gallery in London. And it's just a crazy thing to look at. There's nothing like it in landscape painting. And my special feeling about the artists in this book is that what they're doing for all our idea of, you know, cheese and tulips and clogs and skates and so on. Everything, the ones that I love, are doing. Everything is original and strange. Um, and so is that that extraordinary painting. So Carol Fabricius or Fabritius, um, let's talk about, I guess, first of all, why there are so few paintings. Well, this is the thing I set out to find because there were really, when I started writing the book, there were probably maybe... 10 paintings by him that were known but to be by him and I think it's possible I might have come across one more 11 paintings in a painting career probably starts in when he's 17 and ends with his death at 32 that's pathetic I mean it's so small you think to yourself how can it possibly be he's supposed to have trained in the studio of Rembrandt he goes to Amsterdam from his little village out in the watery flatlands north of Amsterdam and and I think to myself, why are there why are there no more paintings? Because all of the pupils of Rembrandt were really prolific, more or less to a to a fault, but not him. And so the more I researched, the more I discovered the tragedies of his existence. What I discover is that he marries the girl next door in, in the village in Middenbeams to where he comes from. And they have children. They have one child who dies, they have another child who dies, they have a third child who dies, and she dies, probably giving birth to the second child and it's very strange and mysterious and by the time he's 21 they're all dead his entire family has been wiped out and he returns to the village of his birth and remains there and nothing more is heard of him and i searched and i searched and i can find one really magnificent portrait and i can find one very strange painting of a bible scene but really nothing and it's my contention in the book that what happens to him is that he's paralysed with grief. He just completely falls apart. 
and doesn't paint anymore. And there are very, the Dutch kept amazing numbers of records, as you know, everything all the time. They're really punctilious about paperwork. And so I know, I've seen everything I can find of him, and I know that he kept on having to borrow money, and then more money, and more money, and it gets worse and worse. And eventually he marries again, and he goes to live in Delft, and he goes there for a very, very few years before he's blown up in the explosion. And in Delft, he joins a kind of art community. There are all these wonderful painters living there, notably Vermeer, who's younger, and Peter de Hoek, who's a little bit older. And he paints, he starts to paint incredible paintings, really strange and wonderful paintings. And the one that the book starts with is A View of Delft, which is also in the National Gallery, which is a really, really, it's almost like a work of romanticism, and it shows a man brooding in a corner. I always think he looks like he's just fixed some fixed a bit of tobacco from his mouth and like he's got a roll up and he's thinking and he's very melancholy and there's the view of Delft on the other side of the painting. Um seem to be very he's like he's on the wrong side of the street, he's in the darkness and it's very bright over there. And I found it in it was one of the first paintings I ever saw when I came to London in my twenties. And then I always found this painting really haunting. Nobody looks at it. Everybody walks past it. It's really tiny. I think it's a masterpiece. Anyway, he painted that when he got to Delft. That's his, that's more or less his street. And the view of Delft he paints, see, the street scenes that he's painting, the street scenes that he's painting in the picture will be the ones through which his own body is carried to its grave, not very much longer after the painting has been completed. So there are very weird things going on. He paints, nothing he paints is like the last painting. He paints solitary figures, always very, I think, very mournful. And uppermost of these is this painting of a finch, a goldfinch, alone on its perch, hazard forever. It's a really tragic and brilliant painting. And I came eventually to equate Fabricius the painter with the goldfinch in his most famous painting, very solitary and trapped people, both of them, well, figures, both of them. So his story is, I'm following his story all through the book, trying to work out when everybody else is painting hundreds of skating scenes or seascapes, what it is about this strange and very great painter that he doesn't paint. And that's my going to be as there is more to it in, this, in the book. Tell us some more about the explosion. What actually happens? Uh, the explosion um, is it comes at the end of a long war with the Spaniards. The Dutch have kept a lot of gunpowder under the ground. It's in a uh, disused nunnery at the end of the street where Fabricius lives. And a guy called Poor Man, who's literally atomized um, and never seen again, um, a clerk called Sotens, uh, is sent to check that the store is, you know, everything's shipshape in the store. And nobody really knows quite. My conjecture on spending a lot of time discussing this with some wonderful experts at the Blast Institute in Sheffield, who are uh, authorities on, and they're like the belling cat of, of explosions. They always try to work out how explosions occur during the course of writing this book. It was this terrible, devastating explosion. Your listeners may remember in Beirut. And it's exactly the same story, which is that there's gunpowder in a place that it shouldn't be. In Beirut, it was in the port. In Delft, it's under the ground. And somebody goes to check on it. And maybe it's dark on the ground. They take a lantern. Maybe that's what causes it. Maybe it's a spark from turning the key, rusty key in the door, having been checked for a long time. Anyway, the whole thing instantly blew up. And there were paintings and drawings of it. Some of them by people who actually were there. Some of them kind of a bit fictional. <laughs> There's one in which, you know, everybody's been blown into the sky like characters in ejector seats from planes and so on. But he, he was painting 
that day, his house fell instantly in the thunderclap. All the other people, the sitter, um, his mother-in-law, the person who was mixing the paints, they were all killed instantly. He wasn't. He survived for a few hours until help eventually came and they rushed him into the centre of Delta. Only a matter of, you know, three streets and two tiny little bridges over canals and he died of his wounds uh, at twilight on that same day, 12th of October 1654. So did a lot of other people. The main painter of this tragedy is a man called Egbert Vanderpool, and he lived on the same street as a friend and neighbour of the Vicious. And his own daughter died in, in this tragedy too. She was buried on the same day as Carol Vicious. And he painted that scene over and over and over again, and it's called Caption 12th October 1654. And he's always returning to this terrible moment, partly because he was a sort of disaster artist himself. He, he painted huge fires, scenes of you know devastation caused by fire. But this was this was something he actually saw. And when you look at the paintings, which are you know by no means great works like you know paintings of like Vermeer or Fabricius, but they they are quite descriptively accurate insofar as what you see is like ground zero. It's a black hole at the centre of each um, of these paintings which is basically where the whole of this uh, gunpowder explosion has turned to dark water and created a massive hole in the middle of the, the land, really. And one of the people at the Blast Institute compared it with Beirut, but another also to what happened in the Twin Towers, which is just total. People just literally vanished and nobody knows what happened. There's lots of other relatively unknown Dutch painters that you talk about in this book. Um, we're not going to have time to talk about them. One of them that I am now absolutely obsessed with is uh, Adrian Court, who yes. paints obsessively paints vegetables on the same shelf, but they are just absolutely stunning. But I want to spend the last portion of the interview inevitably talking about Vermeer, who was a contemporary of Fabritius in Delft at the time, a little bit younger than him. Maybe they knew each other, maybe they didn't, but certainly Vermeer owned some of his paintings. And of course, since this book has been finished, um, there has been this in- incredible Vermeer exhibition. We went to it um, at the at the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam. Twenty eight of only thirty six paintings, which doesn't sound as impressive now. Now that we know that Fabritius only has about ten or twelve, um, <laughs> but but yeah, um, twenty eight of his paintings collected together. One of which was a painting you talk about in this book um, quite a bit, and um, the little street. So I'd just like to finish off talking about what that painting means to you, Laura. Well, um, that painting is actually the inspiration for the entire book in a way, because I had a reproduction of it pinned on my wall all the way through lockdown. And I'm just obsessed with it because I it shows just a, a little section of a street with a Dutch gable house, you know, stepping up towards this rather steady, beautiful, slightly overcast sky and a few people doing some chores. And I can't tell you how staggering that painting is to me. Its beauty is inexhaustible and very mysterious to me. And certainly when I went to the Rijksmuseum, like you, and stood in front of that painting, which I've seen many times, but I never before had I seen so many people absolutely stunned by it. For some people, it's his greatest painting. What is it about this marquetry of tiles and windows and doorways and, you know, the, the, the stepped gable? What is it about it that makes it so sublime and so orderly and so beautiful? And so I'm very haunted by that painting. I love it very, very passionately. It's one of his only two outside scenes, the other one being also called View of Delft. And I'm also very interested in it because it's a house that he he knew he might have lived in it. His aunt probably owned it. And I know that when he died, when Fabricius is killed, 
his widow or someone sells three paintings by Fabricius to Vermeer and they must have gone through more or less the door in that painting and been hung on the hall that you could see if you could just only enter that scene open up like a doll's house and go inside and he loved Fabricius and Vermeer my god you know what judgment he was so right so I've been talking to Laura Cumming. We've been talking about her book, Thunderclap, a memoir of art and life and sudden death, which is out now in the UK from Chatter and Windus. Laura, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me about it. My pleasure, as always, Neil. Thank you. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by ACAST and published by 89Up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening.